Hey friends, this is Mark Oppenheimer, one of the hosts of Unorthodox. October 27th was the third anniversary of the Tree of Life synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh, and my new book on the topic has just been published. What you're about to hear is an audio special, a special episode of Unorthodox that deals with that shooting. And yes, parts of it are sad and may even be very painful for some people to listen to. But overall, what you're about to hear is actually quite hopeful and filled with good cheer and a lot of really wonderful, unique humanity. And that's the reason that I hope that you will listen to this special episode. And as ever, thank you for being part of our loyal podcast listenership, our pod family, the J Crew. Every available unit in the city needs to get here now. Shots rang out just before 10 a.m. We are pinned down by gunfire. He's firing out of the building with Multiple fatalities. We do there not have a confirmed number yet. The Tree of Life Synagogue is up the street here about a block. Can you tell us what the situation was in there? How many people about were inside? I don't have that answer. Was the service I, going on? I do not want to give you. Uh, my understanding was there was a service. The gunman was armed with an AR-style weapon. He was saying anti-Jewish and anti-Semitic uh, things as he went into that synagogue. Uh, all these Jews need to die. And in this Squirrel Hill neighborhood, a largely Jewish neighborhood, you can imagine they are devastated here tonight. 11 people were killed, six wounded. We are learning more about all of them. audio you just heard is from three years ago, October 27th, 2018, a Sabbath morning three years ago. That's a wild thing to say. Three years. I mean, when I think of what that's been in my life, my baby son was only a month and a half old when that happened. And now he's chattering away at dinner and telling us that he wants to help us find a better recipe for tomorrow. That's his new word, recipe. Three years is a crazy amount of time in life, and it's also a crazy amount of time for a sad event because it feels still so fresh for the people who were close to it, and yet the memories are blurring, and for people who weren't close to it, well, it feels like a really long time ago. But we at Unorthodox want to do something about that. We want to pull it close again. And when I say we, I mean the whole team. I mean my colleagues, Stephanie and Liel, who went down there three years ago, down to Pittsburgh, and produced that special episode that we aired 48 hours later. But of course, I don't just mean we, I also frankly mean me, because when I first heard about the attack, sitting outside a synagogue in Newton, Massachusetts, where I had traveled to take my oldest daughter to a bat mitzvah of a summer camp friend, when I heard about the attack, it really hit close to home. When I read that it was in Squirrel Hill, I mean, that was my family's Squirrel Hill. That was the Jewish neighborhood that's been substantively Jewish, about a third Jewish for a century, where my family has lived for that entire time. My dad was a fifth-generation Pittsburgher and a third-generation Squirrel Hill resident. His family was there since about World War I. His family was there as long as anybody was in Squirrel Hill. And growing up, we'd visit occasionally, but more than that, I would hear the stories, I would hear the family lore of what it was growing up in the 1950s and 60s in this little Jewish Eden where the doors were always left unlocked, where car doors were open with the keys and the ignition, where no one hurt anybody except maybe you skinned your knee when you were playing ball in the street. It was that kind of place. And I grew up with the knowledge that my dad had been nurtured by that kind of place. So when I heard that the worst anti-Semitic attack in American history had come to a place that was as safe for Jews as anywhere in America, maybe anywhere in the world, 
I knew that we had to go back. So first we went back for that special podcast episode. But then I kept going. Starting in November, I went to Pittsburgh 32 times over the next year and a half. My last trip to Pittsburgh was in March of 2020, just as COVID was descending on the country and the world. But I'd already been plenty by that point. I'd been going and taking notes and recording interviews. I'd been walking those streets, Forbes and Murray Avenues, Wilkins and Shady and Beechwood, Darlington. I had talked to about 250 people. And I knew by that point that the book I was going to write, the book that is now just out, Squirrel Hill, The Tree of Life Synagogue Shooting and the Soul of a Neighborhood, was going to be about hope. Now that last part might surprise you, right? I mean, I would tell people I was writing about Squirrel Hill or Tree of Life and they'd always say, that must be so sad. But the truth is that while this was a sad story and I heard so many sad stories about that day, it was actually a hopeful book to write. My reporting often left me even elated. I always say cheered, it cheered me, even when it was sad. Because what I was reporting on, I realized, was the way that a neighborhood can be a protagonist. That the people I met in this neighborhood, because they lived in proximity to each other and knew each other and their families had known each other for generations, were uniquely poised to come through for each other. That the ties that bind a neighborhood together are real and visible and touchable. And that just blew me away. So I want to take you on that journey with me. The reporting journey that I made. I want to give you special, exclusive audio, some of which didn't even end up in my book. I want you to meet some of the people that are in those pages, and I want you to understand what it was like for me over those 32 trips, over 18 months, to go back to Squirrel Hill. The audio you heard was what happened that Saturday morning, but now you're going to hear where we ended up a year later and whom I met along the way. You'll hear about the Gentile who traveled hundreds of miles to plant Stars of David outside of the building, about the burial societies who took care of the bodies, about the man who archives the dry flowers and the stones left behind at memorials, and many more people, Jews and allies, local to Pittsburgh and from far away, who found hope in a neighborhood called Squirrel Hill. Let's go back to the only possible starting point. 9.52 a.m. and about an hour afterward, October 27th, 2018, the corner of Wilkins and Shady in Squirrel Hill, a shooter rampaging through Tree of Life Synagogue, ultimately murdering 11 of the 22 people inside and seriously wounding two others as well as several police officers who responded. Barry Werber was inside when the gunfire began. He says he first heard a crash. I saw a body on the steps, and I realized that the, the crash I'd heard must have been a gunshot. It's just a really surreal experience, right? When something that we know takes place in other places that's so random, strikes so close to home, it's just horrific. Now, I want you to meet someone who was not inside the building. Tammy Hepps 
lived blocks away from Tree of Life. She didn't hear the first sirens that Saturday morning because she was in the shower. But when she got out, she heard her phone going off. She didn't pick it up at first because, well, even though she grew up as a Reformed Jew, she's become more observant and she tries to avoid technology on the Sabbath. But the phone just kept buzzing. Finally, she looked at it and she saw a text from her mom. It read, please call synagogue shooting in PGH, Pittsburgh. So she called her mom and turned on the TV and saw what had happened. That's when she got going and she didn't stop going. She went to her synagogue and then she prayed prayers outside of Tree of Life. And then she had lunch with a friend who was an Orthodox Jew who was a reporter, but he wasn't taking notes that day because it was the Sabbath. And then she went to the JCC where she saw the families of people who they kind of knew already had been shot inside, even though there was no official word from the police yet. The day went on. She ended up crashing at a friend's house that night. She talked with liberal friends about what their response was going to be if President Trump came on Tuesday, as he eventually would. Next thing you knew, Saturday had turned into Sunday and she was finally walking home. She walked past the yellow tape at Tree of Life. When she got near the Tree of Life synagogue, she saw something, something that stopped her in her tracks. A white pickup truck pulled up in front of her and what she saw in the back completely unnerved her. Now, before I tell you what she saw, I need you to rewind with me for a second. Let me ask you a question. If you picture the typical scene of a tragedy a day or two later, what do you see? Maybe flowers, pictures, teddy bears, and crosses, right? That's what we leave in America, white crosses. Now, some of them are constructed by random people in every individual city, but at a lot of those sites of mass terror, Columbine, Parkland, Charleston, the crosses that you've seen on TV were constructed by one man who for 25 years until his death last year traveled millions of miles from tragedy to tragedy erecting those white crosses. That man's name is Greg Zanus. That's the man Tammy Hap saw in front of Tree of Life that day. In order to understand the conversation they had, you need to know a little bit more about him. In every news interview he did, he could rattle off place after place where he had traveled to plant his crosses. El Paso, Virginia Beach was a shooting last year. Aurora, Illinois, my city. In 2018, Zanus was 68 years old and he had already put up more than 25,000 crosses from before Columbine until after Parkland and to many places that didn't make the news. He had gone through four different trucks. He slept in them. I'm the kind of guy that falls asleep real easy. His one-man operation was called Crosses for Losses. I just feel that it's making a difference. When Zanus heard about the shooting, he was home in Aurora, Illinois. But he wouldn't be there for long. He knew what he had to do. Once he heard there was a mass shooting in Pittsburgh, he knew where he had to go. He got in his pickup truck with his wood and his white paint in the back. He'd build on the road somewhere along the 500 miles to Pittsburgh once he knew how many people had died. He arrived in Pittsburgh nine hours later, and now he needed something else. He needed the people's names because he had to paint them on the crosses in black letters. And then he saw a woman walking down Murray Avenue toward him. And she was a little curious about what he had in his truck. Now, here I'll turn to my book where I describe what happened when Tammy Hepps bumped into Greg Zanus. As Hepps remembered it, she looked into Zanus's truck and saw a pile of crosses in the back. They were all white. And on a quick count, she decided that there were 11 of them. As soon as she grasped what she was seeing, she was incensed. 
I thought to myself, you have got to be fucking kidding me, Heps remembered. And I looked around and no one else was there. And I thought, if I have to be the one to tell him he can't put crosses on the synagogue, I will be the one to tell him he can't put crosses on the synagogue. Heps had no idea who this guy was with this kind of nerve. As she was figuring out what to say to him, trying to keep her cool, she saw on the front seat of his truck a pile of wooden six-pointed stars. She was relieved. I thought, okay, what will happen here is he's going to put stars of David on the crosses and it will be okay, she remembered. Zanus got out on the driver's side of the truck and approached Heps. She looked him up and down. He was tired, unshaven, old. What was he doing here? Where had he come from? Then she looked down and saw his hands, and it was as if something became clear. I saw his hands were covered in white paint, Heps remembered. It's like he painted these things overnight and didn't even have time to wash his hands. He told me his intention. He said to me, I made these things, got in my truck, and drove nine hours. There was white paint on his hands. He said to me, I've been driving the whole time. I don't even know the names of the people who died. I have to write their names on the stars. And then Heps knew what she had to do. Her mother had emailed her the full list of the dead that morning, so she had the names on her phone. Blessed is the judge of truth, or in Hebrew, Baruch Dayan HaEmet. And when 11 people are slaughtered, we say it 11 times. Joyce Feinberg, Richard Gottfried, Rose Malinger, Jerry Rabinowitz, Cecil Rosenthal, David Rosenthal, Bernice Simon, Sylvan Simon, Daniel Stein, Melvin Wax, Irv Younger. I brought up this list, she said, and he said to me, can you please write the names in my notebook? And he handed me a pen and his notebook, and I was shaking as I copied these names into his notebook. I have terrible handwriting. So he could write the names on the stars. When Heps had written down all 11 names, she gave Zanus's notebook back to him. Now she had a question. I said to him, why do you do this? He said that there had been gun violence in his family, and this was his response. He said, do you remember Parkland? I did that one. Do you remember Columbine? I did that one too. It had never occurred to me, Tammy Hepp said, that it was one person who had made it his life's work to drive around the country and do this. And at that moment, I realized we are just another one on the list. Now that day, Greg Zanus nailed those stars of David to his crosses. He painted on the 11 names. And then he asked two Orthodox Jewish men who were walking by if they would place them on the synagogue property. They did. And they stayed there for a long time until they were moved inside the synagogue where last I checked, you could still see them through glass doors. Okay, Greg Zanus's crosses for losses, or in this case, stars of David for losses, I guess you could say, are some of the most visible symbols of what happened in Pittsburgh in those first 48 hours after the shooting. But so much of the story that I ended up learning was what happened privately, quietly, invisibly, in secret. And one of the best of those stories was about the Hevra Kadisha, 
Now, the Hevra Kedisha is the Jewish burial society. Literally, it means a holy society. When a Jewish person dies, a Hevra Kedisha steps into the void. The people's names are not known to the community. They do their work in secret. They don't advertise it. They don't talk about it. But what they do is they take care of the bodies. They wash them. They sew them up in linen or Muslim shrouds, and they prepare them Jewishly, chanting psalms over them for the burial that has to come quickly because Jews want to get bodies into the ground as soon as possible. So these are more or less secret societies made up entirely of volunteers. But they come when called at any hour of the day. Actually, they have two functions. Many of the people in the Holy Society function as shomrim or guards who just make sure the bodies are never left unattended from the time that they are transported away from the scene of the death all the way until they are put in the ground. It is Jewish tradition that the body always have people nearby. So some people act as shomrim, while other members of the Hevra do that intimate work of cleansing the body and putting it in the shroud for burial. Two of the men inside Tree of Life on that fateful morning were members of one of Pittsburgh's two holy societies. Dan Leger and Jerry Rabinowitz had both been early and longtime members of the new community Hevra Kedisha, which, unlike the other holy society, included members of the non-Orthodox community. Dan and Jerry were already inside Tree of Life when the shooting started, and when they heard the gunfire, they started running. Dan's a nurse, and Jerry was a doctor, and they thought they could help. They both got shot, and Dan Leger remembers being carried out of the synagogue, being wheeled into the hospital, and then things went black. What happened next, he shared in this memory at a dinner for the new community Hevra Kadisha some months after the shooting. Now, the recording isn't great, and you can hear me furiously scribbling notes, but I think it's worth hearing this memory delivered by Dan. I remember being in a place with light above me, with light coming through a film that was gauzy, permeable to only the light and the shadows of four people standing above me. I wasn't afraid. And I said to myself, my God, it's my friends, the Kevra Hadisha. They're taking care of me. So that's amazing. Dan woke up in the hospital. He saw figures over him and he thought that he had died and that the men he'd worked alongside preparing other bodies for burial were now working on him, preparing him and his soul for burial. And that thought brought him comfort. But he soon regained consciousness and realized he was in a hospital and was surrounded by doctors and nurses. He'd been shot and wounded pretty badly, but he'd survived. He was to learn that his friend, Jerry Rabinowitz, did not survive. Dan's recovery took a long time, and he was still in the hospital when his fellow members of the Hever Kadisha went to work on the bodies of people like Jerry who had not survived. Once the authorities released the bodies to funeral homes, there were taharas to perform. And although it's impossible to say for certain because the tahara is a private act, it seemed that all 11 or almost all 11 of the victims got taharas the ritual Jewish cleansing and burials. One of those bodies was Jerry's. Again, Jerry, along with his colleagues in the Holy Society, the Hevra Kedisha, 
had done this for other corpses dozens of times. And now it was his turn for it to be done on him. Jerry's, uh, you know, normally when you do a tahara, it's three or four people that do it. There were a dozen of us there as well in the world. Right, and so we rotated it to do it. That was Rabbi Ron Simons, another member of the Hevra Kedisha. He told me how hard all that work was, but also how necessary it felt. He also told me that something strange happened in the middle of those long, difficult days. It was Monday night, and he had just arrived at Sugar Funeral Home. There was a knock on the door, right? She said, don't worry, I'm not gonna hurt you. I was like freaking out, right? I got one of the funeral directors who I'd never met before. I said, someone's knocking on your door. We should open it. So she disengaged the alarm, which was one of those fold-up chairs prodded into there. <laughs> we stood together, and this little old woman pushed $1,000 in cash to her face. I said, this is for the married couple. That married couple was Bernice and Sylvan Simon. They'd been married at Tree of Life six decades earlier. The funeral director asked this woman for more information. She said, what's your name? She said, no name. Can I give you a hug? No hug. She just disappeared into the night. Closed the door, reset the alarm. Tian, the funeral director and I looked at each other and we just embraced each other for five minutes, right in tears. That there is such goodness that can happen after such darkness. Now, if you're getting the idea that everyone in Squirrel Hill found a way to help, you're not far off. There were adults rushing around doing all the serious things, the taharas, the preparation for the burials, the preparation for Trump's visit, the protests and counter-protests. But it wasn't just the adults. It was the young people in Pittsburgh who also felt they had to do something, who also had this sense that they couldn't just sit still. One of those young people was Emily Pressman. She was a student at Alderdice High School, which is like the public school in Squirrel Hill. If you meet people from the Pittsburgh diaspora, particularly if they're Jewish, you can pretty much say to them, oh, did you go to Alderdice? What year? And they'll tell you their year at Alderdice. The morning of the attack, she was out of town at a debate tournament in the suburbs. And like Tammy Hepps, whom we heard about earlier encountering the Crosses for Losses guy, she learned what was going on by text. After she heard what was going on, she wanted to leave the debate tournament immediately. But her mom told her to hold on, wait, not to come back to Squirrel Hill yet. Eventually, however, a couple hours later, she left the tournament, went home, and turned on the news. And I sat down on my couch, and I heard them pronounce, this happened on the corner of North Umberland Street. I'm like, what the hell? That's not how you pronounce my street name. And this is the world listening to, like, them saying North Umberland. I'm like, holy shit, that's where I live. I called my best friend Marina and said, what are you doing right now? She's like, oh, I'm helping plan a vigil with some people. I said, where are you? I'm on my way. Emily's friend was at Starbucks. Now, there are two Starbucks in Squirrel Hill, so for those of you who are locals, I'll tell you, this is the one on Forbes Avenue, not on Murray. This is like kind of the bigger, more central Starbucks. And like every Starbucks you've ever been in, it has that one long, big table in the middle, the communal table. And there was about 12 of us sitting around that table. And while this was happening, Squirrel Hill was a ghost town. I've never seen this area so quiet. 
Um, no one know, knew how to react. I was terrified. Emily sat there with about a dozen of her classmates and tried to do something about that silence. They did all the work that's needed for a vigil. They decided something's happening that night. They're going to make it happen. They bought candles. They coordinated with other groups. They found a microphone. They found a stage. They found a song leader to lead songs that night. And they began to get the word out. They wanted other people to know that they would be at the main intersection at Forbes and Murray that night. Now, their biggest task was not figuring out how many candles to buy or anything kind of tangible or material like that. Rather, it was deciding what kind of vigil they wanted to hold. And Emily had an idea. She knew exactly what to do. After all, it was Saturday. It was Shabbat. We wanted to have a Havdalah because this was happening on Saturday. So we wanted everyone who wanted to be there to be there. So being the most religious of the group, I was actually the one who was like, there should be a Havdalah service. There should be, should be at this time. Some people were like, we should make this about gun violence. I was like, this is not the time for that. This was an act of violence against of religion, like that's what this was. So we made sure that was clear. Some people spoke and it was just something to get for the community to be together. We said this Havdalah, if you know the tunes of the songs, we lit the candle, we gave the prayers. One of the things that really struck me in my reporting on Tree of Life was the visual imagery, was the stuff that people made, the posters or the little stars of David that they crocheted or the chalk art on the streets. It was the way that people's grief was transformed into art that stuck around, sometimes for days, weeks, even months. There are three images in particular that stand out in my head. One is a logo that was made by a graphic designer named Tim Hindis, who took the Pittsburgh Steelers logo and replaced the yellow hypocycloid, which is kind of like a diamond, but it's actually called a hypocycloid. And he replaced it with a Star of David. So you have the red and blue Steelers elements and then a yellow Star of David at the top. And then he put in the words stronger than hate. And that became sort of like the poster. People were holding it up at Steelers games the next day. You can still see it in the storefronts along Forbes and Murray in the Squirrel Hill Commercial Corridor. That was number one. Number two, there was beautiful public art in the windows of that Starbucks on Forbes. A Roman Catholic artist painted the words Ahava, Tikva, Chesed, love, hope, loving kindness, along with a dove and a tree of life and a star of David in the windows on that Starbucks. And people can still walk by and see this Hebrew script. But the third one, and the one that I want to tell you about now, is this Hebrew headline. This was a big moment for Pittsburgh's journalists, maybe the biggest they'd had in years. Among the most important of those journalists was David Shribman, who for more than a decade had been editor of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. This was a guy with a long career. He'd been at the Wall Street Journal and the Boston Globe where he won a Pulitzer some years ago. And he had this idea. He wanted to do something that I think had never been done before in the history of English language newspapers. He wanted to run a Hebrew headline across the top of page A1. There were all these uh, rabbis in town, and we don't have Hebrew font. Uh, so I called Rabbi Gibson, James A. Gibson, and uh, I said, you know, I need, I need the first four words of Kaddish uh, in Hebrew. And he asked why, and I said, well, that's what I'm going to do. And uh, he sent them to me. 
Rabbi Gibson, who was Shribman's rabbi at Temple Sinai, sent Shribman the text of the mourner's Kaddish, or the first line, Yitkadal v'yitkadash shemei rabbah. Now that Shribman had the Hebrew text, would he really run this headline? Was it a good idea? He asked some people, including some rabbis, would this be offensive or would this be okay? And people said it would be okay. But Shribman knew that a lot of his audience wouldn't really get it. After all, Pittsburgh and Western Pennsylvania and the whole circulation area of the Post-Gazette, which reaches down into West Virginia, is not actually that Jewish an area. It's not like the New York Times where the readership is Jewish or sort of Jew adjacent. This is Western Pennsylvania. And how would people feel about seeing this big, bizarre script across the fold in the paper? But Shribman forged ahead. He sent the text to the paper's design editor, and he even got in on the design act himself. And I, she saw, I said, no, I want it a little bit bigger and a little more white space and be fooled with it. It was the most hands-on thing I've done in years. They finished the layout, but Shribman kept it to himself. I didn't show it to anyone for fear that there would be pressure to kill it. Now, Shribman, who no longer works at the Post-Gazette, was very discreet about how he discussed all the dealings that went on. But my inference was that he feared there were some repercussions about keeping the headline a secret from others in management or ownership. Nevertheless, he went ahead and sent the paper off to the presses. When I left the office knowing that the morning paper would have that Hebrew headline, I felt I had done my duty for Pittsburgh, I had done my duty for the Post-Gazette, and that my uh, work here was complete. The next day when the paper came out, everyone saw it. It hit British newspapers, Australia, around the world, almost immediately. It was a sensation. It was one of those headlines, like the famous incorrect Dewey defeats Truman headline, that now is one of the headlines that people think about when they think about why you want to hold a newspaper in your hand and not just see it on a tiny smartphone. In the end, this was one of Shribman's last significant acts at the paper. He led the newspaper's coverage of the immediate aftermath of the Tree of Life shooting. And guess what? He ended up with his second Pulitzer. But pretty soon afterwards, he was shown the door. His sabbatical and retirement, which he had planned for the following August, arrived a little bit early in January. But between conceiving of that headline and leaving the newspaper, he wrote an editorial about the headline in which he said, When words seem to fail you, then maybe you're thinking in the wrong language. I don't know how I thought of that, but, but it said everything about this. I have no idea how I thought of that. Now, one of the things I was most interested in was what happened after the media left. I mean, it seems to me whenever there's a mass killing, the national media descend for a day or two days, sometimes more, frankly, sometimes less. But we never see more than a week of the story, with rare exceptions, Parkland, because the students ended up so active, or Sandy Hook, because it was a school and these children were so young. But there are hundreds of these mass killings. They've been going on pretty regularly since Columbine, and typically we only see the first day or two. But here's the thing. The news keeps coming. It's just not always reported as news. People keep coming. People keep sending things. The crime scene keeps growing. It's an ongoing event, and it has to be recorded by somebody. Not by the network reporters who are going to leave, not by NPR, the newspapers whose national correspondents leave too. Somebody on the ground has to be the one to keep the record of this event after the first day and the first week have passed. 
So I went and I kept going. And after the vigils had been held and after the dead had been buried and after this headline had run, people kept leaving objects at the memorial outside Tree of Life. On and around those white stars of David that Greg Zanus had brought to the synagogue, the sidewalk became home to thousands of tiny memorials, all kind of massed into one big setting. Letters, pictures, flowers, stones. And someone had to decide what to do with all of these things. And the man whom it fell to was this guy, Eric Liggy. Eric had spent his high school years in Pittsburgh, and then he'd gone to Pitt for college. He'd ended up spending some time DJing. He'd done a little rock journalism. And then, weirdly, he'd ended up covering the energy industry in Alaska. But long story short, he ends up the director of the Rao Jewish History Program and Archives at the Heinz History Center. Basically, it's one floor of this local history museum, and it's dedicated to the Jews, the Jews of Pittsburgh. And he realized, I'm the guy. And he knew he had a tough job ahead of him. So they have the stars, the white stars, and people had been like loading them up with things. And we decided that just for to be safe, we would take everything that was on those stars off and segregate it by person. Maybe the families don't want that, but if they did, like there's no other way to get it back unless you save it in the moment. So it took two, it took me two hours to go down the length of those and like take everything off. And when I cut to the last one, the first one had like already started accumulating more wow. stuff. Along with all this other stuff, Eric moved the Memorial Mountain inside Tree of Life on November 14th, two weeks after the attack. By this point, it had all gotten wet and was starting to come undone. We spent nine hours bringing it all inside. From there, all this stuff would end up in all sorts of places, but much of it would end up in the archives that Eric ran, which meant that he had a once-in-a-lifetime chance to shape the future it was a chance that most people would never, ever have. It was something that he hadn't counted on ever having. The thing I always tell people about the archives is when you look at an object, you have to imagine 200 years from now. You can't imagine like tomorrow. You have to say everybody on earth is dead. All of the accumulated knowledge we have is gone. And the only thing that people are going to know about this is what the information that we attach on to. The way it's normally done is you take what the world decides to save and decides to donate to you. And that's all you have to work with once the people involved are dead. Now, usually historians and archivists have to make do with the typical things that we always wanted to preserve, speeches and family portraits and heirlooms. People don't keep day-to-day -day ephemera on purpose, and they also don't keep the stuff that makes them sad. Grief is really hard to find in archives. But what Eric had all around him was evidence of grief, endless amounts of grief, endless objects of grief, endless artifacts of grief. There's like 10,000 letters that have come to the congregations. And then like every Jewish organization in the city has been receiving stuff from its counterparts in other parts of the world. There's Facebook pages, there's texts, there's voice messages, there's emails, there's websites. All these things have to, we're like trying to figure out how to archive. Liggy couldn't avoid choosing what to save and what not to. He had to make those decisions. It was part of his job. A part that was even harder than usual. And not just because he was dealing with tragedy, but with a specifically Jewish tragedy. But one of the things that's odd about this is that because it's Jewish, the vast majority of the stuff left at the memorial is blank, anonymous stones. So is there value to cataloging each of, of 2,000 stones? So one of the conversations that we're going to have with the congregations and, and the other stakeholders is, is that really the way you want to go? Or do you want to, like, 
I don't know, turn these over to an artist and have them make like maybe there's another option that will use these things better than just having them. Is, is a researcher really going to come and say, like, I'd like to see stone blank stone 284. <laughs> so those are the kinds of strange conversations that we're having. You know, what's interesting. There's no best practice for this. The earliest example is considered to be Oklahoma City. And there was a big wall that went up. And I think it actually became permanent for a while where they just like decided that the way they were going to handle it was by like curating the wall, but like leaving the wall up, letting people constantly put stuff up and just kind of like curating it. Um, that was like 20 years ago. And there's still not a, like the Society of American Archivists is, has been working on some, some guiding principles, but there's still not like a thing you grab off the shelf when this happens in your community and you say like, this is what we, this is how you handle these things. Almost immediately, Eric got calls from archivists in other cities that had faced massacres. People who called saying, you're gonna need some help. And they did help. But ultimately, Eric Liggy and the Pittsburghers around him had to figure out how to do this in their city. Now that Pittsburgh was the latest city on the list. The real task that the archive can actually accomplish is to prevent the event from becoming generic, to maintain the humanity and to maintain the individuality so that it's not just numbers, it's not just 11, it's not just names. It's people in a community, actual people in an actual community, and that it can never be forgotten that this is not a generic event, this is not one of a list of events. It's a thing that happened to specific people in a specific community. And it's a one, in a sense, it's one off, even though it's part of a larger continuum. Now look, if I had just wanted to write a book about a mass killing, which the FBI defines as any killing of four or more people in one event, I could have chosen any one of over 300 such killings since Columbine in 1999. Let's pause a moment to think about that. That was 1999. If you're a college senior today, you've never lived in a time when mass gun killings were not kind of an epidemic in America. That's just crazy. So over 300 such killings in the past 22 years. How would one even pick? Well, I probably never would have written about a mass killing unless it had happened in Squirrel Hill. And I wrote about Tree of Life not just because my dad is from the neighborhood. Rather, I sensed that there was going to be something unusual about the stories that came in the wake of the disaster. This killing, unlike most, happened to a group of people who knew each other well. They worshiped together and in most cases lived near each other. That was something pretty new and pretty rare. There are other cases like that. Obviously, the students at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland knew each other. Obviously, the Sikhs attacked in the killing outside Milwaukee at a Sikh temple. They knew each other. But most mass killings, if you think about it, happened to a group of people who have in common only that they chose the same day to go to the mall or chose to go see the same one movie at the Cineplex. Otherwise, they have nothing else in common. These are people who otherwise could not be more different. That means that in the aftermath, their families get to know each other only in the context of grief. All they have in common is their suffering. And then in a kind of tortured way, they have in common the fact that they often get some money that comes from the government or from generous donors. And they often are consulted about what to do with the building, should it be torn down or rehabilitated. They have in common all of this sadness. But that wasn't really the story 
for the victims at Tree of Life and the two other congregations inside the building, Dor Hadash and New Light. All three of those congregations lost people on that morning. And those 11 victims and the other 11 who made it out alive had much more in common than just the sadness of that day. These were people who lived near each other, who prayed together. Their loved ones greeted each other and hugged each other and consoled each other in Squirrel Hill, a neighborhood of local institutions, from the post office to the high school to the synagogues to the church where Mr. Rogers worshipped. Yes, Fred Rogers, who was a Squirrel Hill resident and worshipped at Sixth Presbyterian Church at the corner of Forbes and Murray across the street from the Jewish Community Center. The survivors and the victims' families and all those who loved them and cared about them and were traumatized by this event in their neighborhood could see each other at the Giant Eagle supermarket or at Amazing Books and Records, the wonderful used book and vinyl store, which was on Murray and now is on Forbes, or at the Starbucks on Forbes or the Starbucks on Murray or at Little's Shoes on Forbes Avenue where my dad bought shoes in the 1950s. This all happened before COVID, of course, and thank God it did because it meant that when they saw each other, they could hug. They could get tears onto each other's shoulders, and that was a good thing. In the end, what Squirrel Hill taught me was that geography matters, streets matter, sidewalks matter, a newsstand where you can buy a newspaper and see a Hebrew headline and hold it in your hands, that matters, a Starbucks with a big table, a coffee shop or a shoe store or a Thai restaurant that can put in its window a Star of David or the names of the 11 victims so that everyone walking by remembers what happened, that matters. Streets matter, sidewalks matter, businesses matter, synagogues matter, neighborhood matters. Thank you for listening to this special episode of Unorthodox. We'll be back with a regular episode next week. Unorthodox is produced by Tablet Studios, a proud part of Tablet Magazine. This episode was produced and edited by Robert Scaramuccia and me, Josh Cross, with help from Quinn Waller. For more podcasts from Tablet, check out tabletmag.com podcasts. What you heard today was based on Mark Oppenheimer's new book, Squirrel Hill, the Tree of Life Synagogue Shooting, and the Soul of a Neighborhood. Find out more or order your copy at markoppenheimer.com.